This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. この人類の未来は科学の発展と人類の精神的進化のバランスが取れて初めて安定したものになるであろうと確信いたしております。この京都省はこの両面の今後の発展に大きく寄与し、新しい哲学的パラダイムの構築を促進する伊佐坂の
The Kyoto Prize is Japan's highest private award for lifetime achievement in the fields of advanced technology, basic sciences, and arts and philosophy. Awarded by the Inamori Foundation, the prize is presented to individuals and groups worldwide who have significantly contributed to the betterment of mankind. The Inamori Foundation and UC San Diego share similar missions. Our world-class faculty collaborate to advance revolutionary discoveries across multiple disciplines. Together, we drive innovations that advance society and drive economic impact. During this symposium, we have the distinct pleasure of hearing from three Kyoto Prize laureates. Soon, we will hear from Professor Bruno Latour, this year's recipient of the Kyoto Prize in Arts and Philosophy. Professor Latour's transformational work combines his background in philosophy and anthropology to revolutionize the understanding of science studies. At UC San Diego, we are committed to addressing complex issues through multidisciplinary research and collaborations, just like Dr. Latour. His groundbreaking work inspires our world-renowned faculty and researchers as they innovate and pursue new ways of thinking. I'm so delighted to hear Professor Latour speak about his fascinating work that has applications in so many disciplines. Honored guests, it is my sincere pleasure to welcome Dean Cristina Della Coletta, Dean of the Division of Arts and Humanities at UC San Diego, who will tell us more about Professor Latour. Cristina, on to you. Thank you, Chancellor Kosla, and welcome to all joining us today. I'm Cristina Della Coletta, Dean of the UC San Diego Division of Arts and Humanities. Dr. Inamori once said, the future of humanity can be assured only through a balance of scientific progress and spiritual depth. He recognized the interdependency between the sciences and the philosophical arts, not independent, but interdependent. As such, society can only truly advance if we take special consideration into the ethical and social implications of new and advanced technology. And UC San Diego was founded by pioneering leaders in the sciences who care deeply about the implications of their work. In 2017, we launched the Institute for Practical Ethics to bridge this gap, building on our existing strengths in the humanities and social sciences to promote and explore the ethical issues facing the public today. As a public institution, we take this responsibility very seriously. John Evans is a visionary leader who has served as co-director of the Institute for Practical Ethics since its inception. He has more than 20 years of service to UC San Diego through research, teaching, and administrative work including service as chair of the Department of Sociology and currently associate dean of social sciences. In 2018, he was appointed Tata Chancellor's Chair in Social Sciences, a distinction attributed to his deep passion for knowledge and what he calls the foundational humanistic questions behind scientific and technological development. He's an expert on the ethics of human gene editing and a leader in the study of the relationship between religion and science. But John's work cannot be easily categorized as he pursues the foundational questions of society that span all fields, sociology, history, science,
politics and philosophy. This is what makes John Evans the perfect host for Professor Bruno Latour. As John will show in his introduction, Dr. Latour has a distinguished career that has influenced multiple disciplines. It is an honor to help celebrate Dr. Latour as the 36th Kyoto Prize Laureate in Arts and Philosophy. Please enjoy. My name is John Evans, and I'm the Tata Chancellor's Chair of Social Sciences at the University of California, San Diego, and the co-director of the Institute for Practical Ethics, which is focused on the ethics of science, technology, and medicine. I'm the UCSD host professor for Kyoto Prize Laureate Bruno Latour, who is the awardee in the philosophy category for 2021. Unfortunately, he's unable to come to San Diego for the event, but luckily we recorded his laureate lecture earlier this academic year at his family home in France. We'll be viewing that lecture shortly. But before then, I should give just a few words about Professor Latour. Over the past 45 years or more, Latour has been responsible for some of the most groundbreaking arguments in social and philosophical analysis of science. He is arguably one of the modern founders of the field now called Science Studies, for which there is a distinguished program at UCSD. Each of his works is a major event that all scholars in the field must account for and often change our thinking at the same time. It's therefore a great pleasure that Latour is the laureate in the philosophy category this year, and I hope you enjoy his lecture. His lecture will be followed by a discussion between me and Chandra Mukherjee, Distinguished Professor Emerita of Communication and Science Studies at UCSD, who is an expert in Latour's area of research. So thank you very much. I'm Bruno Latour. I'm a mixture of philosophy, anthropology, sociology. I begin to think when I began to write uh, my own notebooks when I was 12. I guess I get ideas uh, because I write all the time. If you, you try to have ideas and then to write, it never works. You have to write first and then you get ideas. Bonn is a small city. Uh, I lived in a very bourgeois, provincial uh, family, but connected to a very interesting business, which is that of wine. And uh, my father was in the wine business. In France, social classes are very uh, delineated by many different layers. So when you come from Bonn, which is in a province, and that you arrive in Paris at the time, uh, you look like uh, a hillbilly. When I was in the class of philosophy in France, there is a philosophy class at the end of high school, and immediately at the first class I said, ah, philosophy, that's what I want to do. And I absorbed a lot of nature. I was in a, uh, looking for a way to get at uh, a question which has interested me all the time how truth is obtained, so to speak. Well, this is what philosophy is about, is the search for truth. Well, there is one decision which was to go to Africa. In Abidjan, I was, I was uh, hired to do uh, fieldwork by a French scientific institution at the time. And another decision uh, 
was to go from Africa to California and to try to compare uh, ethnographic method in, in both cases, in, in the case of Africa, with the case of highly modern California. So it's actually the beginning of my interest in uh, symmetric anthropology. And I became very interested because of a niche experience, because of exegesis experience, in the ways in which uh, scientific objectivity is being produced. And that's why I started to do uh, anthropology of science by going to the laboratory in California. And I spent two years there, and I did laboratory life. The idea was to say, okay, well, how objectivity is being produced? You do produce objectivity, there's no question about it, but how? I used ethnographic method to uh, bring philosophical questions to, uh, to some clarity. And that's what I've always done. Because philosophy is uh, my uh, vocation, so to speak. It's very uh, moving to have to receive uh, the Kyoto Prize here because this is the place where for four generations uh, the Latour's family has, has lived and got its uh, luck, so to speak, because of a plight. The phylloxera destroyed entirely everything else here, the whole uh, wine region of Burgundy. And it was then uh, replanted and replenished uh, much later, especially in this uh, neighborhood in, in Corton by my great-great-grandfather. The other reason, of course, is that wine is entirely about fermentation and uh, microbes and uh, bacillus and all of those ferments. And it's, of course, something which we are now very much reminded of because of the uh, COVID epidemic. So I will use the COVID uh, as a sort of lead uh, because of the type of entity that the viruses has taught us, a very harsh teaching, of course, during those uh, two uh, last year. We learn from collectively, of course, if you are a specialist of viruses, you didn't learn anything, but we, the whole earthly community, so to speak, relearn something about viruses, the virality, so to speak, of that type of agent. Virality, the, the way it spread, is extremely uh, typical of viruses and microbes. First, we learn, which is quite extraordinary, that from basically January, uh, a year and a half ago, and uh, three weeks later, the virus going from mouth to mouth, from mouth to end, from one person to another person, starting probably somewhere in China, spread everywhere and became completely globalized. And that sort of connectedness, the sort of very fast and speed is typical 
of uh, virality. So is the surprising speed at which it uh, mutates. And we learn, again, somewhat tragically, how fast the virus is actually learning other habits, so to speak, through this multiplication of variants, which we now follow in the press uh, every day, which, again, we were very surprised by. And the other thing which I've studied for years is, of course, that it completely modified our social relation. We had to wear a mask, we had to distance ourselves. And those social relations were not only modified among the families inside the small circle, not only nationally, uh, inside any given nation, Japan or France, but it was also an amazing experience of relearning connection uh, between countries. I mean, as we know, we cannot go from one country to the next. Uh, and we learn every day that this country is available, but not that country, etc. So the whole uh, connectedness of human relation was modified by the insertion of a virus's own way of connecting and connecting people uh, globally. So it has a different view of the global, its own way of globalizing. It has a different view of mutating. And it has a different view of modifying every other entity, including human, bacteria, of course, inside which uh, it inserts itself. And that's very uh, interesting, and of course, for me especially, because I've studied uh, Louis Pasteur, the great French uh, bacteriologist, for many years ago. And of course, it's what I've studied uh, in Pasteur's case, that is how microbes (laughs) inserted into society in the 19th century had deeply modified what we could call the social order at the time. And we relearned that with the AIDS, of course, uh, tragic uh, story. We're still learning it. And with every uh, epidemic. But we relearned it globally with the, with the COVID. And that's what in- interests me. So I want to use a virality with, uh, as a guide, as a sort of a token, uh, <laughs> I could say a mascot, uh, because every uh, cosmology has its own uh, privileged object, if I can say that. And uh, I want to contrast what was the privileged object before and what was, is now the privileged object, which I would argue is uh, something like the virus, a type of virality, or actually in English also vitality, which is so typical of a sort of situation in which uh, we are now embedded. So I want to argue about a shift in cosmology, and I use cosmology as, a, as anthropologists would do, as a, as a sort of a structures that distribute agencies uh, around. So I want to start with a very strange puzzle. Why were we surprised by the emergence of a virus? I mean, this is an absolutely normal way in which they spread. Microbes have done that forever. We know that when we do fermentation in the wine business right here, and we were nonetheless completely surprised to have to change the whole fabric of our society because of the emergence of viruses. 
So that's what I want to understand. Why were we puzzled by a type of entity which is so absolutely typical of the way the world in which we live and have ever lived uh, is being uh, built? So I want to contrast with uh, an old, older privileged object of a cosmology earlier. And we could say that if I, we were looking for a typical object, we would probably, at least in the Western imagination, use Galileo's uh, inclined plane, where the rolling balls go down in order to calculate the laws of falling bodies. I mean, there is one uh, canonic example, an icon of what we imagine the world to function in uh, the past cosmology, that would be it. You have a plane, you have bio balls, they run, and that's what allows to uh, connect. Now, the problem with this uh, privileged object is that it has two <laughs> very strange consequences. The first consequence is that it works only in ideal condition. Because, of course, when Galileo did the experiment, as every historian of science knows, it was not exactly as accurate as he said, because you had to forget all of the consequences, all of the uh, resistance of the air, and so on. So the law, which was, of course, discovered by uh, Galileo and then, of course, by the whole Newtonian uh, mechanics, etc., works, but only in ideal condition. So you have, to, you have to shift away, so to speak, from uh, the ways in which we living bodies live in order to say that this uh, law is actually fully and completely calculable, which is not a prime. I mean, every science has to idealize its subject. But it has one second consequence, which is slightly more uh, worrying, is that the scientists themselves so to speak, imagine that they are themselves transported somewhere in the out-of-space uh, abstract, uh, calculable model. So they confuse the invention they have of a world, of uh, the ideal world, with they themselves being somewhere idealized uh, and in another world which is well known now in the science critique by the word view from nowhere. So the science has been sort of shifted away uh, and the scientists have been shifted away from the practical consequences of their uh, own uh, living, so to speak, existence. And that's a very uh, unfortunate, unfortunate consequence because it means that when we talk about those privileged uh, objects, that is, uh, folding bodies uh, and the science that knows about them in a sort of view from nowhere, um, they are themselves nowhere. And that's, I think, one of the reasons why we were so surprised by the emergence of the viruses. And, of course, we know that the origin of this view from nowhere, at least in Western tradition, is actually a consequence of a theology uh, the Christian theology of a God, which is an all-powerful God, which is itself, himself, or herself, nowhere. So the, 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 I could say that, the nowhereness of a 
science imagination, what is called the scientific view of the world, is in Western tradition a descendant of the theology uh, and of uh, uh, Christian theology. So, if we take this privileged object uh, of the first cosmology, I think that explains in part why we were so surprised by the emergence of all the sort of globalized uh, virus. Because if you have, as your canonic example of what the world is made of, the folding bodies, which I take as the canonical mascot, so to speak, of the earlier cosmology, life forms are very strange. Life forms have nowhere to, uh, to go. They have to be pigeonholed, so to speak, in the view from nowhere, but they, they're completely different. Their grammar, so to speak, of agency, the way they behave, is entirely different. And as you know, biology had always great difficulty in entering, in sort of being pigeonholed into the tradition coming from mechanics, physics, and so on, all the way from the beginning of the 17th century to the mid-20th century. Why? Because life forms, and again, the, the COVID is a very good example of that, they react very fast, so they're constantly sort of agitated by uh, other uh, sort of behavior. They mutate, as I, as I said, we observe that all the time with the different uh, variant. They adapt very quickly, they converge sometimes, they overlap with one another, and uh, they have connection with one another. Viruses, we not, even, don't even know if viruses are our enemies or our friends. So we cannot even locate them. Sometimes we need viruses, and if we had no viruses and no bacteria, we would not survive. And sometimes we have to fight them or find a solution to uh, accommodate their, their uh, very quick ways of mutating. So we have a completely strange relation, strange by comparison with the other uh, canonical model which was used in the former cosmology, but completely normal in this uh, world in which we live. So this is a great, I think, a great source of a surprise and the reason why the COVID epidemiology was so completely surprised. The grammar of agency, the grammar of agency is completely different if you take now the viruses as the typical uh, uh, object of a, what resembles to be a new uh, cosmology. And of course, Darwin was supposed to make a big difference to it. But in fact, even in Darwin, the organisms are supposed to be obeying an order of nature, which is uh, the laws of nature being natural selection, which plays about the same role as the laws of folding bodies in the canonical tradition. So Darwin did not modify deeply this sort of a situation. There was still an order of nature. And what we observe today is that there's no order of nature. There are viruses upon viruses, upon bacteria, upon organism, etc., which are constantly moving in this uh, and building this world of ours. So what I could now conclude from that is that today 
we are shifting from the one privileged object, which I described as a folding bodies uh, example, to another one, which I would say uh, is this my strange idea of taking virality uh, as the best uh, example. But if we do it, we have to learn somewhere. We have to actually situate ourselves inside the world of organism for which the virus and the grammar of agency that it represents is absolutely typical of a situation. Of course, it was there before. I mean, there is virology, bacteriology, all sorts of science of those entities before. But they were at the margin of the privileged object of the first cosmology. And now we are moving to another cosmology where the privileged object is this. And what is really uh, interesting, and I want to do my second part of my little argument with, with this, is that it has enormous consequences. It has a big consequence for uh, what I've called in a recent book the new climatic regime. The new climatic regime is the situation inside we find now ourselves. First, if you take uh, the viruses and virality as the privileged object of a new cosmology, science is no longer a view from nowhere. Science is inserted inside the life of organism, as we saw magnificently during the COVID uh, lockdown. I mean, we learned a lot about epidemiology. We learned a lot about the difficulty of knowing what the viruses was doing. All of the sciences which was mobilized during this period was highly visible, made explicitly visible, disputed uh, in the popular press as well as in the scientific press. So there was no way we could actually do for the science of the viruses what had been done before for the science of mechanics with the scientists going away and imagining that they had a view from nowhere. No, 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 they had a view from here and they were very much inserted into all the controversies about the viruses and how uh, it was actually followed and in the magnificent case of a vaccine, how quickly it was possible to actually control some of its activity, only some of its activities, because you know all the imbroglio and all the difficulty to uh, pursue the vaccination in every country. The second, of course, big consequence of this shift in cosmology is that we begin to learn, to our great dismay, at least in Western tradition and Western society, about the constant activity and the quick reactivity of all these living entities. And the most amazing thing is that this is true at the very small scale of a virus and at the extremely big scale of the atmosphere. Because after all, the whole geopolitics now is around this question of climate uh, control and the complexity of making the climate the result of the activity, not only of the life forms in the past, but of human life forms in the present. So at the two extremes, at the viruses and at the 
atmospheric uh, level, we learn that at an extraordinary speed, living forms react to our action and we are reacting to their action. We got sick from the viruses and the atmosphere gets sick, so to speak, from our own activity in the last 100 years. So it changed the default position, if you want. Before we, these things were known, but they were peripheric, they were marginal. Now they are absolutely necessary. They are the default position where to compare, so to speak, with uh, every single movement and uh, agency. And the third consequence, and I will conclude uh, on that, is that, of course, the canonical object, the preferred mascot of the earlier cosmology, was, I mean, triggered a different uh, project for the evolution and uh, drive the vectors of history. History was supposed to be a movement to try as far as you could to escape from the earth and lived in this imagined world of a scientific vision of the world as it had been imagined by first cosmology taking the Galilean laws of body as its privileged object. I simplify, of course, I dramatize, but it's to make the point much clearer. But now, if you take virality, viruses, the way they spread, the way they react to action, and if you take it at the two level, the extremely small and the extremely big, and all of the intermediary, you are in a different project. You enter into a very much a different history. And that's the complete shift from what I've called in uh, uh, several, several books and a longer career, uh, the end of a modernist project. If you. Modernism in the Western tradition was completely driven by this uh, vector, completely driven by this idea that we could actually shift out of the world in some sort of strange way with, with a sort of uh, strange imagination that there was a world of infinite uh, access and infinite uh, resources. Now, we are back to Earth. Now there is no way you can actually move out of the Earth. You have to get back into it. And uh, this is what I've been uh, arguing for many years. But I have to say that the COVID epidemic was so... Uh, prodigiously uh, instructive for all of us because of a connection with the climate crisis itself. So it's two, cri it's two crises sort of lodged into one another, one for the uh, medical, so to speak, and one for the cosmological. Well, that's exactly uh, why we now have to work on the new project, which is something probably fairly different from the modernist project, science, the art, and the law, and all of the moral uh, sciences. So I'm very proud of receiving the prize, and I thank you again very much for receiving the prize, because that's the sort of thing I'd like to push in the rest of my career, 
what is the alternative to the modernist project if we have to live here and not there? I mean, I know there are people who want to go to Mars, but it's a sort of uh, project of the past. The project of the future is actually to get back in here. And it's fairly amusing for me to say that here, in my own uh, house, so to speak, and uh, in the deeply uh, microbe-built, uh, I could have it. If there is one thing which is microbe-built, it's actually the wine. So maybe at the end of this uh, little talk, we'll celebrate in some ways, and I will try to find a way to celebrate the Kyoto Prize. Thank you very much again. I'm here with Chandra Mukherjee, Distinguished Professor Emerita of Communication and Science Studies at UCSD. Her many publications include the books Territorial Ambitions in the Garden of Versailles, A Fragile Power, Scientists in the State, Modernity Reimagined, An Analytic Guide, and Impossible Engineering, Technology and Territoriality on the Canal du Midi. So uh, we'll be having a conversation about Latour's published work. And Chandra, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Um, so I want to start with the most uh, sort of general of questions. What makes Latour's work so important and worthy of a Kyoto Prize? He um, developed a study of uh, laboratories and science as a way of uh, understanding and critiquing modernity that uh, changed the way in which people thought about science um, by focusing on the practice of, in laboratories, sort of the everyday life of science. And this was uh, revolutionary in a way because he uh, tried to show that science was a mundane practice, that it was done by human beings rather than superhuman beings, um, working with uh, pieces of equipment and working on samples from the natural world. And they, and they produce knowledge um, in collaboration both with each other as scientists and, and with these objects uh, from nature. And in, in making this analysis of science, he was working against the conception of science in sort of the Enlightenment version of modernity, in which science was meant to be true, um, absolute certitude, um, it was a product of human rationality um, that was uh, sort of superhuman in nature. And Latour then was trying to show that this human practice was what produced the knowledge in science. So that's very interesting. So the earlier vision was that truth somehow revealed itself sort of from on high. And Latour was one of the first people to say, well, in actuality, this is a practice of us humans. Right. to try to determine what right. is true. Right. Um, and uh, do you think that that had an impact on how scholars viewed science from that point forward? I think so. I mean, it was a very exciting um, form of research for sociologists, historians, and philosophers who all started paying attention to mundane practices of science, either in the past or in the production of um, philosophical knowledge and, and in sociology, which is where Latour started. So it was revolutionary for a variety of fields and helped to produce this inter 
discipline of science studies or science and technology studies. So I think it was almost 50 years ago now, he did one of his earliest and most influential works, mm -hmm. uh, which is a study of a laboratory right here in San Diego uh, at Salk. Right. Um, and I remember uh, reading that book uh, when I was in graduate school and be really struck by the idea of uh, there is information that your instruments and things are telling you, but it doesn't just pop onto a journal article as true unmediated. That's right. You know, and so uh, I think uh, it's that social process that becomes so interesting. How does, I think as Latour said in one of his uh, interviews, how does objectivity produced? Yes, um, he uh, actually, I met him when he was here doing his his research. And I have to say, as a, on a personal note, he was just one of these wonderful bundles of energy and intelligence and uh, excitement uh, about the research. And uh, he, uh, he, I think, made three really important contributions in that, uh, in that, in that study. One of them was to focus on the literary practices of science. Um, what he noticed was that scientists spend a lot of their time not in, in the laboratory doing the research, but in their offices writing up articles or um, in journal clubs talking to each other. And, and so that he, he, he was making the point that um, science was not a matter of engaging with nature or um, sitting and thinking at a desk rationally uh, apart from everything else. It was very much a system of knowledge built around communication and a, a set of literary practices. So that was the first important finding. The other, um, the other idea in that, in that study that was really influential um, was the idea of immutable mobiles. He argued that scientific papers are uh, immutable mobiles, which is to say that they um, don't change when you take them from place to place. You can take a, a, a reprint and put it in your suitcase and go to a conference and show it to somebody and it's going to say the same thing that it said before. And so, and he says the same thing is true of a lot of samples in science that you take the sample, you put it in your suitcase, you go someplace to another lab, and it's the same thing in, in the new site that it was before. Um, and this allows science to be both very local in practice, that people have particular labs that they go to, particular conferences they go to, but also seem universal because these objects and the knowledge based on the research circulates in a very stable kind of way. So that was the second uh, major point. The third one, which really opened up over his career, was the idea that facts were built through networks. Um, he, he argued that um, it took uh, uh, scientists believing in facts, it took the evidence of the samples that were being studied uh, to make facts seem credible, um, it made the, um, the publication, the fact that something gets published, um, uh, the sort of social credibility of it, uh, um, that, made, that made a fact seem stable and accepted and, and part of science. And this idea um, really um, opened up a whole new line of, of research and thought for him, where he started thinking about the, 
the nature of science as uh, really organized around networks of people and things, human, humans and non-humans, he famously said. Um, and this became what was known as actor network theory and a very influential. So it's all very interesting. I mean, and one of the overall images I'm getting of Latour's work is the previous notion he was reacting against. Now, I can't remember which Enlightenment thinker said this, but something like, truth is not a minted coin uh, that you can just you know put into your pocket, right? Right. Um, and so he's showing the human science is a human process that has, is involves real, actual, fallible human beings. In his uh, lecture that uh, the viewers have just uh, seen, you know, he talks about uh, how he is appreciative of science and everything that science has done. What would you say he would uh, would say is the sort of proper human role in science or the um, what how has his perspective humanized science well in some ways you could say it's the opposite of that because he's tried to make the argument that that non-humans are just as important as humans Mm -hmm. in the constitution of science that if you don't if you don't have things that you're studying the things scientists tell sort of give meaning to the things that they study but the things that they study also give meaning to them. Their identities are formed through their relationship to the kind of research that they that they do. Um, and so, so they're really, it's much more in his work the, the close relationship between human beings and non-humans that is very, very important to him and becomes crucial to his later thinking. So um, any academics listening to this can go look up his citation counts and uh, be green with jealousy. Uh, and one of his is a book that is titled uh, We Have Never Been Modern, right. which I won't even tell you how many times it has been cited. Right. A lot. Right. Uh, extremely influential. Can right. you tell us what he meant by the, the claim that we have never been modern? Um, he, he's basically arguing that the, there's a kind of mythology that developed during the during the Enlightenment uh, about human beings, human nature, and the role of science in it. Um, human beings were seen as being different from all other creatures uh, of the earth because of their intelligence, and that this intelligence allowed human beings to develop uh, a rationality that was sort of the, um, the highest expression of human nature. Um, and, and science was important because science became the demonstration of human rationality and thought. And so science was seen as a repository of, of rational ideas, uh, a place for uh, creating uh, very abstract uh, notions of, of the world and, and a place in which categories were clear knowledge was clear and 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 human ability to the human ability to uh, dominate nature was made possible by human rationality so when you say dominate nature it really brings to mind more recent work uh, that he has been doing about climate change right um, and uh, he's been very concerned about climate change can you Tell me how that interest emerged from his studies of science. 
in some ways you could say it, it influenced his, his studies of science as much as emerged from it because he, he began to see um, evidence of uh, global warming in scientific papers and, and felt that um, people in science studies uh, tended to be critical of science and that that, that was not appropriate because even though science was a human and fallible activity and you could point to historical uh, um, cases of, of very bad ideas that didn't pan out, um, that, that, that science still was our most reliable way of making uh, knowledge. And he argued that it was not because human beings were so exceptional, that human rationality was so great because humans were very irrational, um, including in their uses of science. But um, um, the, 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 the thing that made science uh, reliable was its institutional form, that it was set up uh, to require people to be precise, to follow certain methodological prescriptions, uh, to uh, vet its work in front of other people, early demonstrations, then publications. Um, in all those cases, ideas went through uh, a lot of study and collective uh, inquiry um, before they gathered these sort of networks of believers that made them, that made facts, right? Mm -hmm. So it took um, a great deal of social activity within the institution of science to make a social fact and to make a social fact that was stable, that people would continue to believe in over time. And, um, and so science was a human activity. It was still a human activity. It was still being done by fallible people. But the way the institution was set up, it was that it was meant to produce the most reliable knowledge that we could make. Yeah, so the bumper sticker could be um, science as an institution is the best we have, right. but let's not think it's infallible. Right. I mean, actually, in, in, uh, in one of his books, he starts by arguing that we underappreciate the institutional character of science, that um, the emphasis on the scientific genius, on the individual scientists and who's smarter than who and, you know, who, who gets priority and who wins the Nobel Prize, all of those things are, are important, but they don't, uh, they don't really uh, allow you to appreciate the collective nature of the enterprise that allows people to do excellent work. This uh, reminds me of a, of a similar sociological area where the knowledge has been held in sort of cosmic esteem, which is religion. And there's a very famous sociologist of religion of the 1960s who argued that you need a sociological analysis of religion to find out what is actually, he would say, from the divine and what is sort of human baggage. And so, you know, it's a similar analogy, right? Like you need a human analysis of the actual humans doing science right. to understand the whole process much better. Right. So how would you say that Latour has influenced your own work? Ah, uh, well, um... I started studying science because of him, because he was here at UCSD, um, and it was it was so exciting. I started doing research down at Scripps Institution of Oceanography and, and wrote a book about that. 
Um, but I, but I started doing historical research and, and looking at this intersection actually of science and modernity, um, in the 17th century mainly, but also in the 16th and 18th and, and really looking at the, um, development of um, systems of power, particularly the state, and um, um, the control of nature and natural forces. Mm -hmm. So Chandra, you said something very interesting a few minutes ago about how one of his great contributions was, it's not just that there's scientists A, B, and C in the laboratory, but they're essentially inanimate objects. And the language he's used in the past is that these two have agency, yeah. uh, and they're sort of part of the scientific discovery process. Now, um, the way we usually think of agency is that you have to be a conscious being to intentionally act. So can you tell me what he meant by agency? Um, by, well, For by non-human non agency. Non-human agency, yeah. yes. Um, that that non-humans have their, their own ways of acting, hmm. independent of uh, human beings. So... Um, when, when I was doing research on the Canal du Midi, um, one of the things that I paid attention to was the agency of water, right? Mm -hmm. Because water will flow downhill if it has the chance, mm -hmm. right? And it, it has other qualities of, you know, entering porous soil and all the rest of that. Um, so it's something that acts on its own behalf, right? Mm -hmm. And you could argue that Trees are acting on their own behalf. Um, certainly, uh, one of the interesting new things that uh, Bruno has written is, is called After Lockdown. It's a book that deals with, with COVID and the lockdown. And um, he makes the argument that, that COVID is a predator, much like us, mm -hmm. right? We take the environment and use it to our advantage. We are an environment in which that COVID uses for its advantage in order to reproduce and spread itself around the world. Um, and so we, we, he would argue that we actually misunderstand the world we live in when we assume that the only agency is in us. It really is a, you know, part of the Christian tradition that humans were made in God's image. And so Adam was different than everybody else. And so Adam has agency and responsibility for that agency, um, whereas other things are, in a sense, inanimate. Um, but the more that uh, people have been studying natural things, the more agency they see in, in things in the natural world. And so um, it's, a, it's a very important contribution to the understanding not only of science, but um, his understanding of why science is important because science is a place in which the agency of nature is uh, central. You, you cannot have an experiment unless the thing that you're studying responds to the conditions that you set, you know, and right. uh, scientists understand non-human agency because they, they depend on it. Right. Um, so it's, it's something that you can see in science, but also it's something much broader. And climate change, Latour argues, is the great experiment of modernity. That is the result of our, the conditions that we've set right. for the world. So when you discuss agency, 
we could it be safely say that humans have a different type of agency than the plants. We not all have the same level or type of agency. We just have to account for the agency that non-human entities have when we try to explain something. We could argue that, but the uh, uh, there's a crow having a lot of agency yeah. <laughs> <laughs> breaking into our conversation. Um, yes, but but Bruno doesn't do that. Okay, because he is he. He says if you, if we want to uh, live well or correctly or whatever, we need to take the, the agential needs of all creatures mm. into account instead of making our agency the only agency that matters. Well, thank you very much, Chandra. This has been very enlightening for us. Thank you very much for talking with me. Thanks.本郷、人類の未来はこの発展と人類の精神的進化のバランスが取れて初めて安定したものになるであろうと確信をいたしております。この京都庁はこの両面の本郷の発展に大きく寄与し、新しい哲学的パラダイムの構築を促進する伊